That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Well, a couple of things here I want to share with you. It's breaking news, as it were. They had a fourth wave in Israel. They vaccinated the whole country with a third, you know, a third shot and had no deaths, zero deaths, even though they had a lot of cases. You know, there's a lot of mandatory testing going on, so you, you find it, but no deaths. And now, number 10 Downing Street, this is, you know, the, the administration in the United Kingdom, Boris Johnson's administration, uh, they are coming out now and saying, well, this is from The Guardian, British-based newspaper, ministers are set to require, that would be, you know, uh, the health ministry, presumably, within the government. Ministers are set to require three vaccinations from those eligible for booster jabs in order to qualify as being fully vaccinated in areas where people must prove their status, such as traveling or avoiding mandatory isolation. Downing Street sources said the intention was to end up in a place with three jabs rather than two as the requirement to obtain a COVID pass showing full vaccination. Their equivalent of the FDA, it's called the Joint Committee on Vaccination and Immunization, is recommending boosters for all adults six months after their second jab. But now they're talking about basically making that mandatory. It's fascinating. So. On the line with us is uh, Dr. Eric Feigelding, the uh, epidemiologist, senior fellow with the American Federation, or excuse me, the Federation of American Scientists. He's a former faculty member and researcher at the Harvard Medical School and the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health, and was the first whistleblower on the COVID pandemic. And if you don't follow him on Twitter, you need to you need to get over there. His Twitter handle is Dr. Eric Ding, D-R-E-R-I-C-D-I-N-G. And uh, he's just got a fabulous Twitter feed. Uh, Dr. Feigelding, welcome back to the program. I see that, um, you know, Europe is locking down. Austria just today, starting today, is saying if you're not fully vaccinated, you may not leave your house. They're locking down all non-vaccinated people. Other parts of Europe are dealing with a fourth, uh, what looks like a fourth wave. Every time this has hit Europe, it's followed, you know, just a, a weeks or months later, it's, ha- it's hit us. What is going on here? Is this still the Delta variant? Is, you know, it, why, is it, why is it making a resurgence? Is it the weather? Yeah, thanks for having me. There is definitely a crisis. It's ongoing. It's, it's you know, five-alarm fire. It's a wildfire that's completely out of control in Europe. It started in Eastern Europe. It's really grown uh, in, into Western Europe as well as the U.K., and there, it, and the, the lockdown is a partial lockdown for those who are unvaccinated. But even then, it's not enough. You have 
there's not enough vaccination rates, there's not enough masking mitigations are uh, previously completely dropped by Germany, Denmark, Netherlands, uh, and they all are now having record all-time number of cases. And yes, deaths are rising too, in addition to com- critically overloaded hospitals. It's like deja vu, but it is definitely going to uh, restart a, another winter wave for the U.S. as well. We've seen it time and time again. What happens there ends up happening here within a few weeks or a few months. So then it sounds like the common sense explanation is this is just a combination of uh, we thought we were okay and we let down our guard and winter is here and we're going indoors. Exactly. It's a lot of the indoor, as the weather gets cold, people stop opening their windows, start gathering indoors again with the windows closed. And that's just a recipe for disaster with an airborne virus. And, you know, we haven't really solved the fundamentals of the virus yet. The virus is still spreading. There's not enough immunity. There's obviously sometimes waning immunity. We really need three shots. We shouldn't just call it booster, but we really need three shots because Israel is, by the way, is at zero coronavirus deaths because they have mandated three shots. You're not fully vaxxed until you're three shot vaxxed. We really need that plus the other indoor mitigations. And I just want to tell you, like, for example, if if you're on a – uh, vegan diet for one month after your high cholesterol, uh, and then you suddenly stop, your cholesterol may have dropped for one month, but then you're, uh, the moment you switch back to what you were doing before without solving the underlying uh, disease, you're going to uh, get back to where you started and it's going to run like a muck again. So you have to actually solve and cure the underlying problem. And that is to really, really get to almost zero elimination for the virus. We have to flush the damn virus out of our country. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I get exactly. it. Now, there's also a new variant that's floating around Europe. Um, uh, it, it's popped up in a couple of countries. It seems not to have um, become hyper prevalent. Um, it's it originated in Africa. I'm uh, Forgive me for not remembering the, the, the name of it, but um, what's, the, what's the latest on various mutations and anything that we need to worry about there? Yeah, some of the other new mutations haven't really panned out yet. There's a new and there's a few others. There is one in in um, the UK. It's called uh, Delta Plus AY4, but uh, it's growing, but it's growing very slowly. It's now 15% of the UK. It's about 10% more contagious and 10% more severe than the original uh, than Delta, but it's much still uh, much more uh, contagious than the original virus. But it's not the underlying reason here for the surge. The surge is back to the fundamentals. There's airborne transmission. We let down our guard. We're, we've ignored that the virus is airborne. We don't have enough mass, premium mass, uh, and we don't have enough mitigations to disinfect the air or ventilate the air indoors. And, of course, vaccines on top. We're just not doing that again because holiday people are gathering for the holidays, and that's what really worries me. We have Thanksgiving here in the U.S., it's going to super spread. Cases are already rising in the northern states. You should see Minnesota right now. It's increasing exponentially. And, you know, with holidays like Christmas, it's going to spread even more. We're going to have a double whammy in the coming weeks. And people are basically going to suffer the crisis and calamity of basically ignoring public health advice. And many of our leaders in the states and governments are ignoring uh, the, the fact that the virus is still here. There, many of them are pretending that COVID is over. COVID is not over. 
it is just beginning the winter wave, and we're going to see a really bad winter wave that is going to likely be worse than the summer winter uh, summer wave. I've been, uh, you know, reading the literature on on um, uh, viral diseases and and epidemics, pandemics. Uh, Lori Garrett's got a, a you know a, a book that came out well over a decade ago about this that uh, that I read back then actually, um, and. Um, you know, there's this theory that the, that some of the very various viruses that we might call the common cold, at one point were actually deadly viruses to the human species, and they, as they mutated over time, they became more contagious and less deadly, uh, to the point that they basically became nuisance viruses. Do you think there's a possibility that that will happen with COVID? It's possible that will happen, but we should not play that game right now. By the way, that process took many, many decades and hundreds of years. Correct. We should not play that kind of long game. We should try to return to normal with actually uh, eliminating the virus as much as possible. And we don't talk about worldwide. We just mean like local uh, eradication. Mm. Because that is really, really what we have to think about. We're talking about the not just deaths, but overloaded hospitals, healthcare bills, and, you know, deferred surgeries for other people's illnesses. And, of course, long COVID. The crisis of long COVID is very, very serious, which will tax our healthcare system for decades to come. We should not use, quote, unquote, learn to live with the virus in the ignore the virus and let it spread mentality. Yeah, we no. need to get it as low as possible, immunize as much as possible, and then let it basically simmer in the background at a very, very, very low level, if not zero. And then... We can talk about, you know, learning to uh, live with the virus at, at low rates, yeah. not when there is a wildfire. You can't learn to live with a wildfire in your backyard. And that is what we have. Well, it's like you're talking about getting it to where it's like measles or polio. You know, the virus is still out there, but we basically got it under control through immunization and public health measures. Um, you mentioned long covid there's uh, uh, some fascinating research now coming out suggesting, you know, the original assumption, I think, on, on the part of a lot of people was that long COVID might have been caused by basically kind of micro strokes, you know, these, because it's such a clotting disease that you get blood clots in muscles that disable those muscles or blood clots in the brain that cause, you know, confusion and dementia and things. But now there's this evidence indicating that, you know, as many as a third to a half of people who had symptomatic COVID are having long COVID and that it seems to have to do with the, the immune system shifting into a, into a new state, into a different state, into a hyper, continuously hyperreactive state. What do we know about that? Yeah, I think long COVID is this big black box. We just don't know enough about it. We do know that it has lots of organ damage across range of organs. And that could also be that the virus is never cleared because it resides in your central nervous system, your CNS, um, because your central nervous system is a completely different immune system from your antibodies and everything. You're, you're, it's called um, privileged immunity. Basically, your immune system can't attack it because it's a special um, bubble for you, <laughs> that your body creates. And the problem is that, hence, a lot of the neurological damage we think is from long COVID but the good news, by the way, the vaccine actually reduces long COVID symptoms and clears it in about half the people. Um, that's really, really good news. And yeah. the reason why we probably think is it's an extra uh, immunity clearance support. Yeah, but, just, uh, you know, it's clearly a long, pernicious, pernicious problem that we're going to have to deal with. And this is all the, it's another reason not to 
uh, you know, play dangerous games and play this crazy, crazy um, Russian roulette that we are, uh, some of us are pushing with, you know, learn to live with the virus. There is so much we don't know, and I think the debilitating cost on our healthcare system and our society is something we should not try to, you know, gamble with. Uh, yeah, I'm completely way. with you. Because I think now, it is really, really dangerous. Uh, the last question here. We, these antiviral pills are are on the verge of coming out. Uh, malnupiravir and Paxlovid. I, I'm sure I'm mispronouncing them, but, you know, uh, drugs that can change the course of the, of the illness if they're taken, you know, early on. Uh, but they're just oral, you know, they pick them up at your local drugstore kind of drugs. How is that going to change things, or are you concerned? I, I'm frankly, I'm worried that these are going to cause, particularly in the red states, people to say, "Oh, another reason not to get vaccinated." Because if I get sick, I'll just take a pill. Yeah, I, I, these pills are a double-edged sword because, in many ways, you know, it, it definitely saves lives. Um, but by the way, monopiravir, um, it's some countries have authorized the emergency, but there is still a lot of concerns about the mutagenic, as in read that as potential cancer mutation causing um, long-term uh, effects we don't know about. And Paxlovid, uh, and also these costs are going to also drive up our healthcare system. It will prevent you from dying, but it doesn't stop infection. And uh, can I say something? Stopping infections is so, so much more important. It's kind of like you can give a uh, person a fish and feed him for a day, or you can teach him how to fish and feed him for a lifetime, and, as in, and teach him how to stop the infection. And right now, all these drugs are basically uh, giving a, a pill and solving their hospitalization for a day. Um, it doesn't actually solve the greater contagious exponential increase because the virus can exponentially increase overnight. The supply of these uh, drugs and the money to pay them cannot exponentially just uh, appear and uh, suddenly, you know, help solve all this exponentially. So I don't think there's a long-term solution. The long-term solution is reducing and cutting the virus as low as possible. Purge the virus out. from from our from our, our our pool of humans. Dr. Eric Feigelding uh, over on Twitter. D R E R I C D I N G. Uh, check it out, Dr. Feigelding. Thanks thanks again for dropping by. It's always great talking with you. Thank you. Sometimes Louise and I just crave a restaurant-quality dinner at home without doing all the work or driving. Well, Cook Unity is the first chef-to-you service delivering locally sourced meals from award-winning chefs right to your door every week. And it appears to be less expensive than other delivery options. Go to cookunity.com Hartman with two N's or enter the code Hartman with two N's before checking out for 50% off your first week. We just received our first meals from Cook Unity and what a huge difference it is to get the best chefs in the country to bring creative, delicious meals to us and you every week. Every meal is handcrafted by chefs and made in local micro kitchens, not large production facilities. We just had the chipotle maple glazed salmon with green beans and mango pico de gallo. It had everything we love in a meal. They have all sorts of options like vegan, paleo, pescatarian, gluten-free, and more. Menus are posted two weeks in advance so you have plenty of time to choose. Experience chef-quality meals every week delivered right to your door. Go to cookunity.com slash Hartman with two N's or enter the code Hartman with two N's before checking out for 50% off your first week. That's 50% off your first week by using the code Hartman 
or going to cookunity.com slash Hartman. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. This, is, this has to do with the Build Back Better bill. The Build Back Better bill, which has not yet passed, would provide you, if you buy an electric vehicle, with a $7,500 tax credit, which reduces the price of an electric vehicle because it's a credit, it's actual money coming from the government. So it effectively reduces the price of an electric vehicle by $7,500. In addition to that, the Build Back Better law, or act, it's not a law yet, in fact it hasn't even passed the House of Representatives yet, much less the Senate, uh, the Build Back Better Act would also give you a $4,500 credit if you buy a car, an electric car, that was made in the United States with unionized labor. Now, that's fascinating, right? We're not all, we're, we're, this is called living your values. We are not only going to incentivize people to move away from gasoline, from gas-powered cars that are stinky and produce emissions that cause cancer and asthma. There's estimated 10,000 cases a year of, of, of just cancer in the United States from car emissions. Hundreds of thousands of cases of asthma and other you know, uh, diseases, not just lung diseases, caused by car emissions. So you know, we want to move people, not to mention the national security aspect of oil, not to mention the climate change aspect of oil. So we want to move people away from vehicles that are going to you know, drip pet petrocarbons and, uh, and, and, uh, and the fumes from them into their garages and next door to their houses. We want to move people out of that and into these incredibly clean electric vehicles that don't stink up your, your, your garage or your carport or whatever it may be, that, uh, or, or, and, and, or your state or your city, and that are just lickety split. If you've never driven an electric car, or even a plug-in hybrid, where you can go 30, 40 miles on a charge and then it kicks over into gasoline, you gotta do it. I mean, these, these things are amazing. They're like jackrabbits. There's no transmission. It's just boom, right out of the gate. All that power, 100% of that power from the battery is being converted into kinetic energy. Whereas with a gasoline engine, you've got to shift up, you know, because you just you don't have that kind of torque available to you. So, anyhow, to promote these, a you know, our our first value, we want to promote saving the planet. So let's build car. It takes about 17 years in total for all the cars to get flushed out of the system and new cars to replace them. Uh, that's, that's peak maximum replacement. Average replacement time is around seven or eight years. So, you know, get started now. 
right? If we want to have a really big impact a decade from now. So start giving people an incentive to buy a car. And it's because one of our values is fighting climate change. Another one of our values is that workers should have union representation in the workplace, particularly in large companies where individual workers, you know, compared to the whole company, have not only no power, but generally speaking, not even any ability to, to communicate to power, to speak to power. So we're going to say, yeah, we're going to give you a $7,500 tax credit if you buy a car that doesn't cause pollution. And then on top of that, we're going to give you another $4,500 if that car that doesn't cause pollution was made by union labor in the United States. Now, does that sound great? Joe Manchin doesn't think so. Neither does the entire Republican Party. Now, I get that the Republican Party would be opposed to this because they hate unions. I mean, you know, Ronald Reagan declared a war on unions in August of 19, uh, excuse me, not, yeah, uh, August of 1981 when he uh, fired 11,345 people, you know, PATCO strike at the entire union. Fired them all. And, and, you know, broke one of, one of the two unions that supported him in the election. Just crushed them as the kickoff for Reagan's war on labor. And he took us from being one-third unionized to now 6% of the private workforce is unionized in the United States as a result of Reagan's 40-year, this 40-year war on labor that Reagan kicked off. So you can understand why all the Republicans would be opposed to a $4,500 tax credit for buying a clean vehicle, an electric vehicle, that was made with union labor in the United States. But why would Joe Manchin oppose it? Well, it turns out that Toyota, and this, this might be one of those areas where it's kind of hard to criticize him, and I'll explain why in just a moment. But it turns out that Toyota has just announced that it's going to invest $240 million in a West Virginia plant to produce hybrid vehicles. And it's going to be a non-union plant. So, you know, the first obligation of a senator is to the, the nation, right? I mean, you know, just generally speaking, you're a member of the federal legislature, your first obligation is to the nation generally speaking. But the second obligation, and occasionally it'll supersede the first, depending on the issue, is to the people in your state. So the question that I have, and I honestly don't know the answer to this, is, is Joe Manchin opposing this $4,500 provision for union labor because a non-union auto factory is about to be built in West Virginia? Although they're not going to be making electric vehicles, by the way. They're going to be making hybrid vehicles. So this wouldn't even apply to them. Although down the road, in all probability, they'll be making electric vehicles. Is he doing this about West Virginia? Or is he doing this because of opposition to unions? Uh, the article that talks about this, is, it's over at Common Dreams. The, the headline is, Inexcusable, Manchin leads, char leads charge against Biden's pro-union electric vehicle tax credit. 
But that article notes, joining Manchin in opposition to the tax incentive are Republican lawmakers, including Senators John Cornyn of Texas and Roger Weicker of Mississippi. So Our Revolution, the group that Bernie Sanders started, that is now independent of Bernie, Our Revolution came out with a, with a, uh, a statement on this. And they said, our climate is running out of time, yet Manchin wants to stand in the way of affordable and sustainable solutions. Shame. So I share with you both sides of the argument. Either he's working to make sure that that factory doesn't go down in flames in West Virginia, or he's trying to, you know, diminish the power of unions in the United States. Or maybe it's both. Up next, getting pregnant shouldn't get you killed. This is the Tom Hartman Program. But increasingly in the United States, it does. Tom in Torrance, California. Hey, Tom, what's on your mind today? Hey, man, uh, thanks for taking my call. The reason I'm calling you is because of messaging. You know, like I, I see the, the, this guy Bannon show up at the FBI office, and and he turns it into a media circus. Yep. And he's really Breitbart. All these guys are. Really oh, I've been saying this for a week, Tom. The the number one thing that Steve Bannon, actually for several weeks, the number one thing Steve Bannon wants is to be arrested. He wants to spend a month in jail. Look at what it did yeah. for Adolf Hitler in 1922. Yeah. <laughs> right. It made him a right. national and hero. Yeah, and then these these nut jobs that they're they're all part of this whole team, like Flynn wanting the, the country to be a, a, a one religion country. I mean, right. you know, the, the the scary part is that there's probably 25 percent of the country that would like to see that. I think. Well, yeah, there there certainly is, sadly. But I, you know, my sense of Michael Flynn is that he is now working for and has been for several years. Uh, foreign governments that are hostile to the United States. I, I, I yeah. do not yeah. believe that Michael Flynn is a patriot. I, I think he is. Uh, I, I, I think he's working on behalf of foreign interests. Well, there you go. Now, now, but nobody's talking about that. I mean, yeah. thank God you, you're a, a word of reason in this this insane world, Tom, because you really do well, talk about it. But there's, somebody's got to so say. Much well, right, but there's so much of this that is not on messaging that we need to get out in front of this. Like when when Bannon's pulling up in an FBI van, there there needs to be someone from the State Department that says we're very glad that he is here. He's come to his senses and he's not as crazy as we thought he was. Oops! Oh, wait a minute. Yeah, he is. <laughs> yeah, because he is. Um, and yeah. and and I'm you know like I said yesterday. I mean, this is going to make him an extra million dollars this year because it's going to jack up his advertising revenue. His podcast is now the number one podcast in America, and he's making serious money off it. Yeah, it's scary. It's yeah, scary. it really but, is. But if we don't start taking control of the messaging, then these guys will do it for us. And yeah. and and then that's the rabbit hole that we are slowly. No, I'm with down you. I'm with you, Tom. And they have been, you know, they've been taking control of the messaging since Lee Atwater days back in the 1980s. Tom, I got to move along. Yeah. Thank you for the for the call and your points very well made. Linda in Auburn, Washington. Hey, Linda, what's on your mind today? Well, you just had somebody on, and I wanted to just say one thing about that, that if we want to make rich oligarchs richer, we could keep buying their products, or we could work for states having natural health departments that educate people to boost immune health. Do you think and that getting healthy is going to prevent you from getting COVID? Is that what you're trying to say? Well, I know... Uh, 
several people, both vaccinated and non-vaccinated, that through boosting their immune system got over the symptoms of COVID. So yeah. that's when mm-hmm. you, I don't know why we don't ever hear. Also, with vitamin D, you have to build it up over time. So at the last moment, it's not the time to try to build up your vitamin D, which I don't know why nobody even talks about. You know that. Oh, the CDC is- actually the CDC does talk about that, Linda, and they do say that uh, vitamin D deficiencies make you more vulnerable to COVID. But you know, if you're going to come here with an anti-vax rant, I'm not going to hear it. Dave in New Brunswick, New Jersey. Hey, Dave, what's up? Hey, I I'm of the thinking that things are generally worse than they are, and the, it's too late to convert to renewables. First, firstly. Um, you know, a solar panel lasts 25 to 30 years. So if we do a mass build out of solar panels, we're going to be using a lot of we're going to be using a lot of carbon to build them, and then we're going to be using a lot of carbon to de- deconstruct them and recycle them. It'll um, still be a hell of a lot less carbon than if we build a whole lot of power plants that are reliant on burning fossil fuels continuously. It'll be huge. Yeah, but wouldn't, wouldn't weatherization of existing buildings wouldn't people oh, that's a given. keep keeping cars? To last longer. Yeah. There was an article in, um, and uh, you know, maybe I'm not as with it as you are, but I'm, I'm reading stuff like I'm reading in the Guardian that um, if you keep a car on the road, even an old car, versus buying a new green car, every mile that it drives is, is saving energy because the manufacturer of a car That's true. requires carbon. That's absolutely true, Dave. It's absolutely true, and we need to recognize that and, and be a little, you know, more careful and a little less, you know, just crazy consumer. On the other hand, cars die. Eventually, they they hit their, the end of their useful lifespan. I've had two cars over 100,000 miles on them, but they eventually croak. And when you replace it, replace it with an electric one. Dave, thanks for the call. Quick math, the less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. With higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR, all into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required. It's accessible from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash Hartman with two N's. netsuite.com slash Hartman. That's netsuite.com slash Hartman. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Welcome back, Tom Hartman here with you. A couple of points here. This this uh, 
I was unaware of this. I knew that homicide, you know, is one of the leading causes of death for women in the United States. I did not realize that it is the single leading cause of death uh, for pregnant women in the United States. This was published uh, this month in uh, Obstetrics and Gynecology, a, you know, a peer-reviewed journal for uh, physicians, principally, and researchers in that field. Pregnant women in the United States die by homicide more often than they die of pregnancy-related causes, and they are frequently killed by their partner. This was done at the University of Michigan Medical School in Ann Arbor. The study results, according to one of the, uh, one of the physicians at uh, U of M, uh, Vijay Singh, he says, the study results are stunning. U.S. women who are pregnant or were pregnant in the past 42 days, the postpartum period, die by homicide at more than twice the rate that they die of bleeding or placental disorders, which are the main reasons why women die from childbirth or from pregnancy. Becoming pregnant increases the death of homicide, the risk of death by homicide. Between the ages of 10 and 44 years old, women who are pregnant or had their pregnancy end in the last year are killed at a rate 16% higher than women who are not pregnant. Phyllis Sharps, a nurse scientist at the John Hopkins School of Nursing in Baltimore, uh, talks about this, the, the violence caused by intimate partners. She said, there, there's an idea in our society that pregnancy is just a happy time. But for a lot of women, that's not true. It's just not true. And a lot of women are just not safe in their own homes. Age, by the way, is a factor. Young women between the ages of 10 and 24 are at the highest risk of homicide when they become pregnant. In 2000, and how do we know this? We, we've just learned this. Because it was only in 2003, 18 years ago, that we started requiring that death certificates indicate whether a person was pregnant when they died. Now, this came out of the whole, you know, anti-abortion right to life, uh, you know, uh, was it one death or two, uh, you know, kind of thinking. And so now they're able to look at these death certificates and discover that uh, there's a 16% increase in the probability that you will be murdered if you are uh, typically by an intimate partner, if you are pregnant, particularly if you're under 24 years old or over 10 years old. This is, uh, by the way, has become part of the new evidence that more than 800 scientists and scientific organizations have used to put together over a hundred different amicus briefs. Is it amicus or amicus? I can never remember. Anyhow, friend of the court briefs uh, with the Supreme Court uh, because on December 1st, they are hearing this case, uh, uh, Jackson Women's Health Organization versus the state of Mississippi. I'm not sure that's the actual name of the case, but that's who's, who the litigants are um, that will uh, ban abortion after 15 weeks of pregnancy in Mississippi. And if the court goes along with it, that's the end of Roe v. Wade, or the revision of Roe v. Wade. And 12 states have already passed laws saying that if the Supreme Court changes things, then instantly we change things. And there's another estimated 8 to 10 states that will. They filed, these groups have filed a total of more than 130 front of the court briefs in this case. Oh, it's called Dobbs v. Jackson Women's Health Organization. 550 researchers in public health, reproductive health, and health policy, along with the American Public Health Association and two research institutes, have filed as well, saying it's important to keep abortion legal in the United States. And one of the data points they're pointing to 
is the fact that when women become pregnant and their pregnancy becomes known to their partners, they're at higher risk of homicide. They also are citing this new study. It's called the Turnaway Study. This was, uh, they followed 1,000 women in the United States for five years after they sought abortions. About half of them got abortions. About half of them didn't. In more than 40 reports peer, uh, published in peer-reviewed scientific journals, what they found on average, receiving an abortion didn't harm women's mental or physical health, but being denied an abortion resulted in negative financial and health outcomes. The mortality rate for a colonoscopy is four times higher than for an abortion uh, and 14 times higher than legal, legal childbirth. It's kind of an anecdotal thing. But wow, I had no idea. I mean, I guess I did, but men are killing women because the women are revealing to them that they're pregnant. It's amazing. Absolutely amazing. Stick around. now prosecuting oil executives for complicity in war crimes. This is amazing. You know, when, when uh, Ellen Ratner and Joe Madison and his wife Sherry and my son Justin and I um, and a few other people, Rusty Humphreys, a conservative talk show host, was with us, um, we were in Gokmachar, a, a little town up in the northwestern part of South Sudan. Right about, We were about 15 miles south of the Darfur border. And the Sudanese government, the, what you would call, you know, what was north of South Sudan. South Sudan was then on the verge of being an independent republic. This was the year before the election, or maybe, maybe it was the year of the election. In any case, it was right around that time. Um, Sudan to the north was cutting, a, cutting deals with oil companies to explore, and South Sudan to the south were both cutting deals with oil companies. In this case, this particular one has to do with a deal cut with Bashir in the north looking for oil, and they were finding oil in that area near where Darfur was, and so, so uh, Bashir just unleashed the Janjaweed. We literally saw this happening. We, had, we, we, had a we were in a little village 500 miles from the nearest paved road, 500 miles from the nearest electricity, with one hand well. It was a little village of about, it should have been about six or 7,000 people. There was like 40,000 refugees there. Many of them from Darfur, many of them from the southern parts of Sudan. And we could, we could see the fire from the burning huts, homes, in Darfur on the horizon. As we, as we flew in and took off, we could see the, the violence going on just, just right across the border from us. Well, it turns out that that violence was the result of oil companies exploring oil and, and the Sudanese government saying, hey, we got to get these local indigenous people the hell out of here so that we can drill for oil. And the Swedish government, one of those oil companies was a Swedish oil company. And the Swedish company, government now is talking about going after them. This is from uh, Daily Kos, a uh, post by... Pakalolo, the Swedish prosecution authority has indicted two oil executives for complicity in the war crimes against the people of Sudan by the former government of Omar al-Bashir. And then they talk about the chair and controlling family shareholder of a Swedish oil and gas company. 
and the CEO of, uh, of this company, quote, are alleged to have committed grave war crimes by sparking a civil war that resulted in the deaths of thousands and the displacement of hundreds of thousands. If these guys are convicted, these Swedish oil executives are convicted, they could be put in prison for the rest of their lives. I mean, this is, this is pretty amazing. This is from, from the Associated Press. From 1983 to 2005, Sudan was torn apart by a civil war between the Muslim-dominated North and the Christian South. A separate conflict in Darfur, the war-scarred region of Western Sudan, began in 2003. Thousands of people were killed, nearly 200,000 displaced. In a 2010 report by an activist group, they alleged that this particular oil company and three other oil companies helped exacerbate the war in southern Sudan by signing an oil exploration deal with the Sudanese government for an area the regime didn't fully control. The military and its allied militia systematically attacked civilians or carried out indiscriminate attacks, said public prosecutor Heinrich Attorps in a statement. This is all coming out of a Financial Times piece. Atrocities included killings, rape, child abduction, torture, the destruction of schools, markets, and clinics, the burning of food, huts, and animal shelters. Thousands died, 200,000 people violently displaced. And, and I saw at least 20,000 of them with my own eyes. We were, we were literally feeding these people. So is it time for us to take a serious look at not just the damage that is being done by oil exploration around the world? You know, we just had all these, uh, these oil executives uh, before Congress, but also for us to take a serious look at the behavior of some of these companies internationally? I'm thinking it probably is. Let's have a conversation about that. Oh, and finally, when are we going to hold the public good over profits? I mean, there was a time when we actually took this seriously, the public good. The top 50, this is, uh, Bernie Sanders just tweeted this out. While we pay the highest prices in the world for prescription drugs and one out of four Americans can't afford the medicine they need, the top 15 pharmaceutical executives pulled in more than $470 million in salaries and bonuses last year. Greed, greed, greed. And now these guys are working with Senate Republicans and a handful of Democrats to try to strip drug pricing control, drug price controls and the ability of Medicare to negotiate prescription drugs out of the Build Back Better plan. And they think they've got enough, you know, all the Republicans and enough Democrats with them. And now they're going after Elizabeth McDonough. She's the parliamentarian. They're trying to convince, she's unelected. But she can sink a piece of legislation that has to be passed by reconciliation. And they're saying to her, you know, this doesn't qualify for reconciliation. They're lobbying, they're lobbying the Senate parliamentarian who I think, you know, frankly, I think Chuck Schumer should replace. When do we fundamentally shift our cultural norms and start saying in the United States, the public good is actually more important than profits? Okay, it's time to commit. 
2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Brandon in San Diego. Hey, Brandon, what's up? Hey, how's it going, boss? Um, you know, I'm trying to find the answer to, like, all of this stuff, and I don't know. It's like oil's, oil's obviously not the answer, but... Rare earth minerals are hard to find. Like you're going to have to drill everywhere for rare earth. Brandon, uh, we we've got we any- have here in uh, Oregon a company that is making batteries. The, they're they're making them the size of the back end of a, a tractor trailer truck, and they are iron based. Iron is the most abundant uh, element in the Earth's core. Uh, the Earth's surface, uh, you know, they're 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 for industrial use. You know, there's like backup batteries for factories or for neighborhoods, but battery yeah. technology is is a really exploding. And B, you want an energy source? I'm all in favor of fusion energy. We have a massive fusion nuclear reactor, capable that yep. is that is blowing out more energy right now than the than you know more energy hits the United States in one day than the entire world uses in a year. That reactor we call the sun. It's 93 million miles away. Let's start gathering that energy. Well, that's I'm all on board. Let's start making our own solar panels. We don't even make steel in the country really anymore right now. I know. So I, like I'm all on board. We just need to start making our own stuff. Otherwise, we're asking countries that don't that pollute more than us to help us out to make this stuff so it's like i don't know i think we need to like focus on making our own stuff and keep it clean here and then we can go abroad like that's it yeah well that's if you want to have a wealthy country if you want to build the wealth of a nation literally the only way to do that is through manufacturing and i'm with you brandon we should be we should be bringing back uh, you know, our factories to the United States. So we should be building, you know, new generation factories, uh, you know, something like Elon Musk is actually doing, um, you know, as, as much as I'm not always a huge fan of this guy, um, you know, yeah. he, 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 there, there's a lot of innovation in manufacturing that would allow us to, to, to do, you know, relatively green manufacturing in the United States, certainly greener than it's being done in a lot of other parts of the world. I'm with it. Brandon, thank you for the call. Thanks for listening to us on Sirius XM. You're listening to Tom Hartman. Joseph in Gilbert, Arizona, says you have an idea about the minimum wage. What, what's up? Well, what it is is that it has to do with uh, small business, and this is a, the proposal that I have uh-huh. for small independent businesses. The business would pay the new minimum wage, but then they would receive a, re, a monthly rebate by the federal government for the difference between the minimum wage and the old minimum wage. And what that would do is help keep that them in business. It would only be available for small independent businesses, and big businesses and franchisees would not be eligible. Hmm. I, you know, my concern, Joseph, as much as I'm 
not a fan of dog eat dog, you know, evolutionary kind of, you know, uh, Wall Street sort of business practices. I am uh, concerned about government subsidizing businesses that have unsustainable business practices. And I just think that if any company in this country, if anybody wants to do business, you know, whether it's a, a three-person company or a 3,000-person company, if they want to do business in this country, they should do it in a way that allows them to pay their people a decent wage. And if they can't, they have no right being in business. Well, I never ran a business, so I, I didn't know that. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, you know, I'm just, I'm not saying this as a business person. I'm saying it as, as a general principle. I think that you know, that's the whole point of the minimum wage law is that, you know, if you can't run your business and at least pay $7.25 an hour, then, you know, forget it. You can't, you can't have a business. So I'm, I'm a fan of government, government subsidies in many areas, you know, and things that, you know, that, that we want to. But, but if the challenge that you're trying to address, and I suspect it is, is small businesses being destroyed by giant companies and monopolies, which is a yeah. real problem in America then rather than uh, subsidizing small businesses that want to pay crappy wages, why don't we just break up the big companies? I mean, that's what Teddy Roosevelt you know, advocated back in, in the 19 aughts to Richard Nixon and uh, Jimmy Carter did with AT&T. Actually, they broke up over 200 different trusts back in the first two decades of the last century, of the 20th century. It seems like that would be a, a much better way of doing it. But, you know, keep thinking. Keep thinking. I, I like the way you're oh. thinking here. Thank you very much. Brian in Albuquerque, New Mexico. Hey, Brian, what's on your mind today? Hey, Tom. I wanted to point out uh, my wife and her family and all of her friends grew up in southeast New Mexico. That's part of the Permian Basin. It's the uh, most productive oil region in the United States right now, along with West Texas. Yep. And... Uh, you know, the oil addiction isn't just about burning gas. It's also about people's jobs and what they do and what they like to do. Um, my father-in-law, he ran a transmission shop, and his hobby was drag racing. So him and his friends, they drive a great big RV all over the place, hauling their race cars and burning gas, oil, and rubber all weekend. And that's what they like to do. Yeah, they could do that with electricity just as easily, and then they wouldn't be inhaling fumes that are going to cause them to get cancer in their 50s. Right. And, you know, I'm with you. I agree that people have to change their ways, but we're telling people that you have to change your lifestyle for the good of everybody. Well, I think I heard probably the most stupid interview I've ever heard on NPR this morning. Um, the, the guy was uh, interviewing somebody about, you know, uh, we're going to move to electric cars. And, and this guy was like, yeah, but I love my gas powered engine. You know, my it was about uh, electric uh, pickup trucks. And 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 the, the person on NPR was saying, yeah, but, uh, you know, the pickup trucks are pickup trucks, right? They've got to have gas engines, otherwise they're not really pickup trucks. And I'm, and I'm saying, this is a guy who's never driven an electric vehicle. It, because if, you, if you've ever driven, honest to God, if you've ever driven an electric vehicle, they have faster pickup. I mean, you stop the gas pedal, and I, I realize this is an electric pedal, but nonetheless, you stop the gas pedal on an electric vehicle, and you're pushed back in your seat like in a jet engine. It is cool. And you can't get right. that out of a gasoline-powered vehicle. So, you know, if you like to, if you want a drag race, hey, this is, this is your product. If you want to haul around drag races, you know, b b vans, I would think RVs would be perfect things to electrify. You got plenty of space inside there to put it up batteries that you could have a seven, 800 mile range. I mean, you know, yeah. this, this, and, and you can put, you know, solar panels on the roof to keep it topped off continuously. Um, so right. I, I don't. We're talking about, 
a lot of money to transition from one to the other. Yeah, well, right. there's a lot of money to transition from horses to cars, too. Societies right. go individual. through those changes. Can I ask you a personal question? No. <laughs> I'd rather oh, not. How, how Thanks many, a lot, Brian. Russell in Upland, California. Hey, Russell, what's up? I'm calling about renewable energy on military bases. Yeah. <clears throat> what do you know? Up until recently, uh, I worked at a Navy base in Norco, California, and for years they've been in the process of working with a company to provide renewable solar energy to build a solar energy farm. And I think in the last year, they had entered a contract with that company to actually build the, the solar farm. I believe they are in the process, albeit possibly slow, in uh, constructing that solar farm. Oh, that's great. In California? Yes. For a military base? Yes. That's great news, Russell. That's great news. I, you know, I, I hope to, to see and hear more about these kind of things, but that's, that's great news. Thank you for the call. Suzanne in Dublin, Ohio. Hey, Suzanne, what's on your mind today? I have two questions about the electric car. The sure. modern day one I hold requires uh, a battery, a new battery every two years, and, and it costs two thousand dollars. Is that correct? No, it's not correct. It, you you do have to. You may have to replace the battery in an electric car over a period of time. It'll it'll have more to do with how many times it's charged and discharged than with how old it is. I've had the car that I have for four years now. And the battery still is at 100%. I mean, it, it still holds the same charge it always did. That, that helps me with that thought. Okay, and then and I, I wonder... And I've, and, and I've driven about 12,000 miles on it total in those four years. Oh, oh that's good to know. I, but I also wonder, coming from Flint, Michigan, I always keep my eye on what General Motors is up to. Mm. I now live in Ohio. But a while back, I think it was in the 90s, there was a video out. I don't remember if I saw it at the movies or I bought the video because the topic was of interest to me. And that is the e, I think it was called the EBB. And when I search, I cannot find it on the Internet. I think it was taken off the market. I think GM wanted to put a gag order on it. But what I remember vaguely in this movie, and I may have some of the details a little off, but they forced that car back off the market. You're I talking mean, about movie the movie that, Who Killed the Electric Car? That movie that yeah. came out about 20 years ago? Yeah. Yeah, that yeah, was brilliant. see that. Yeah, yeah. Did, well, my understanding of that is they took it off the market because, yeah. and, and, and hush, hush, because they couldn't make money because it didn't require a ba it didn't require uh, engine or the, transmission. Right, the fossil. The right, ex exactly. And, then, and by the way, that's the money that you save. You may have to replace your battery, you know, once in a while with an electric vehicle, but you don't have a transmission. You don't have transmission fluid to change. You don't have oil in your engine. You don't have oil to change. I mean, it's just like it's so there. There again, it's, there again, it's big corporations at the public good. Yeah. Yeah, there you go. And and by the way, it wasn't just killing the electric car. If you go to Los Angeles and drive down, I'm trying to remember the street, uh, Figueroa, I'm forgetting. There's a street right off Hollywood Boulevard that crosses Santa Monica. And as you're cross, and it's a major street, I think maybe it's Third Avenue, whatever it is. Anyhow, as you're crossing the street, you're crossing railroad tracks. And it's like, whoa, where do these railroad tracks come from? Well, Los Angeles used to have the nation's most advanced, most consequential, largest, most no, largest number of stops, most used public transit system in the United States. 
And back in the 1920s or 30s, an oil company and a tire company, I'm not going to do the names from memory because I might have them wrong, but an oil company and a tire company were convicted in court of the crime. What they had done is they had gone to the, to the city government and they had said, privatize this to us, give us this, this uh, public transit system, and we will improve it. We will make it better. We will expand it. And so the city handed it over to this company, to this new company that was created by, you know, as a result of this oil and tire company. And they pulled out all the tracks, shut it down, because they wanted to promote cars, right? Yeah. It was all about promoting uh, internal combustion engines that would consume oil and that would yeah. use rubber tires. And yes. I mean, you know, I think we should word out there about, I don't think people know about this EBB or who killed the electric car. Yeah. They need to know, and people need to rebel against Oh, it's an amazing crime story. You know, it's, it's a 40-year-old story, but it's an amazing crime story. Suzanne, I gotta run, but thank you for the call. Speaking the truth, the fossil fuel companies would really rather you didn't know all about. Charlotte in San Diego. Hey, Charlotte, what's on your mind today? Hi, Tom. I just wanted to tout the electric vehicle. We just bought a Tesla about two months ago, and we love it. And the get-up-and-go is unbelievable. I mean, from zero to 60 is probably three seconds. Yeah. It seems that way. It's anyway, like a rocket ship. And, uh, yeah, it is. It truly is. And the things that I didn't even think about till we got it. It's nice to feel like your gas pump is in your garage because you just plug it in at night. But also that you don't have to buy mufflers. And you mentioned oil and transmission fluid and things like that. But there's no exhaust system. There's no radiator. So people may be thinking they're spending too much money on the actual car. But when you consider all the maintenance you don't have to do and all the trips you have to don't have to make to the dealership, it makes a big difference. And also in California, we don't have to have smog checks on those cars every two years, which means that's saving $75 just on that alone every two years. So And a couple a hours bit, of your time. Yes, exactly. And so they may be a little bit more pricey, but when you weigh in the fact that you're not paying gas and sitting at the gas pump and all the maintenance and everything else, I don't see any disadvantage to it. Yeah. And I, I and in another year or two, we're going to buy our other car out and make it electric. So, yeah, yeah. I was I was listening to to NPR this morning. You know, when I'm taking a shower and I'm yelling at the radio. You know, this guy, <laughs> oh, pickup trucks. They got to have gas engines, or it's not really a pickup truck. I'm like, you've never driven an electric vehicle. I can tell. It's like, oh my oh. god, because they're like no. rocket ships. And, I, and I'm talking about my little Prius plug-in hybrid, you know, that only goes 30 miles on a charge, but it sure does go. And, yes. And, and then and then it kicks over to gasoline, and it'll go another 300 miles if you if you need to. But you know, uh, my next car is going to be a fully electric car. I mean, this is we bought this one four or five years ago, and uh, it, it's amazing. Charlotte, thank you. Thank yeah. you for sharing that story with us. I appreciate it. And thanks for watching us on Free Speech TV. Cliff in Santa Clarita. Hey, Cliff, what's on your mind? Good morning, Professor. Listen, I was a blue-collar guy, 30 years in the Teamsters. So what I know about blue-collar workforce is they primarily work for the money. It's not that some of us aren't environmentally conscious. I'm 100% in favor of getting off fossil fuels, but the paycheck is paramount. So if we're going to replace sure. all these workers, 
We need to get them jobs that pay equally or close to equal pay. Or better. Right? I, huh? Or better. Or better. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, let's, let's, let's unionize, you know, the American workforce. I checked on the Internet, Tom. How many gas stations are there in the United States? I have Over no 100, idea. Oh, I know. I didn't either. Over 150,000. Wow. It's mind-boggling. So do you, okay, can this be done? Can we replace all these fossil fuel workers and give them jobs equal or better pay? Well, I would, I would bet you, Cliff, that of that 150,000 gas stations, probably fewer than a third of them would go out of business if we electrified the whole country. Because most gas stations are no longer gas stations. In fact, most gas stations aren't even making their profit selling gas. They're making their profit selling beer, fast food, you know, drinks, uh, snacks, uh, pharmaceuticals. I mean, they're, you know, they're, they're a little mixed. You know, convenience yeah, store. Exactly. Yeah. They're convenience stores. And, and now we are developing charging technologies where you can charge a car in five minutes, right? They just, uh, there was a piece in Science News about this last week. Oh, wow. Yeah, wow. literally in five minutes. And, wow. and, and it's, just, it's just a matter of getting cables that are big enough to carry that kind of amperage. And, and then you distribute it across, you know, you break up the battery into, into a thousand smaller pieces so they all charge simultaneously, and boom, you've got it. And so, you know, I, I don't think that we have to worry about putting a lot of people out of work here. And it's going to create a whole lot of new jobs as well. You know, you've got new well. charging stations, you've got installing these things. And really, who wants to be pumping gas for a living? I pumped gas. You know, when I was going to college, I, I changed tires and I pumped gas at the Esso station on Trowbridge Road. And I'm standing there inhaling gas fumes while I'm holding the thing in the in the gas tank, wondering, you know, how long is it going to be before the acetone in this gas in these gas fumes that I'm inhaling, the, you know, the high fractions, the formaldehydes and the acetones and all that. How how long is it going to be before it, it causes liver cancer in me? Right. Yeah. I mean, you know, yeah. do we really want to subject people to that? Fossil fuels are poison. Of course not. They're they're friggin' poison. So 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 would would the would the charging stations replace the gas stations? Sure. In, in some cases. Or gas stations, they just take out some of the pumps or most of the pumps or eventually all of the pumps and replace them with fast charging stations. Although I'm thinking right. most people will just charge off their homes. It's not that right. big a deal. And if you charge overnight, that's when the grid has the maximum capacity because there's a minimum usage. So you don't even right. have to reconfigure the grids if people are charging right. their cars overnight. And with the way you make them do that, the way you encourage them to do that is you charge two cents or less per kilowatt hour for electricity at night rather than during the day. Cliff, thanks a lot for the call. Hey, special thanks to Louise Hartman, Sean Taylor, Nate Atwell, Jamie Holly, Joyce the Hammer Nance, Nigel Peacock, Sue Nethercutt, Patrick Hoyt, Geraldine Halbert, Ron Hartenbaum, Chase Spross, Nicholas Miller, Pat Sweeney, Jabberwocky, Jay LeBlanc, Connor Arroyo, and Carne Verde. All the folks who work on this program. And thank you to you for uh, participating with our program and spreading the good word and supporting our sponsors and our stations. Get out there, get active, tag your it. You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com. 